Hello and welcome to the menu. I am Marcus Hippi. This week we are in Portugal for one of the country's leading wine fairs, Essencia do Vinho, in Lisbon. The objective is to do something which is pleasure, just gives you enjoyment, easy drinking, but with some flavor, some structure, some texture. We will also hear how the Sri Lankan and South Indian concept hoppers became one of the biggest restaurant success stories London has seen in recent years. For me, it's really organically developing as a group, which is very exciting. I never had this vision. I have never had this. I mean, I had a vision, but never imagined that we could be the size we are and come to represent Sri Lanka the way we do. All that's the week's food and drink headlines and a dinner soundtrack recommendation too ahead in this episode of The Menu. Now here in London, Hopper's restaurants have been one of the greatest successes in the capital in the past decade. Serving Sri Lankan and South Indian inspired dishes, the first Hopper's restaurants opened in Soho in 2015 and ever since two others have opened their doors in different parts of the city. Considering the success of Hopper's, it is surprising that we had to wait for this long for a cookbook to come out. But that's happened now. Hopper's, the cookbook, has just been released. Karen Gokani is a co-founder and creative director of Hoppers. He joined me a bit earlier to talk about the new book and how the idea for the restaurant was born. We first, Karam and I, my brother-in-law and I, first started talking about Hoppers at my wedding, which was in Kerala. But I'm sure, you know, he had been thinking about this for a long time. I had, oddly enough, had this obsession for the Indian version of the Hopper, which is an upper. And I'd spent weeks traveling around uh, Kerala, learning about this upper. I had some of my best friends from university who were Sri Lankan, had cooked with their parents, traveled there a few times, even proposed to my wife in Sri Lanka, completely well before this idea was even conceived. So both of us had our separate connections. I think Karam had a lot of school friends who were Sri Lankan, but British-born Sri Lankan. And we got talking about this concept um, which was really a, a casual, fun restaurant. And for me as a non-restauranteur, as someone who's come in as a lawyer, uh, has never really worked in a fine dine restaurant. Also, even till date, I just love the casual restaurants. I love a place where you can talk to your neighbor, you can talk to uh, your your server. And actually, those are experiences that last much longer than the, the what you ate on a night. So for me, it was I wanted to do something casual. I think Aram was ready to do something casual. We then started, we planted the seed at the wedding, yes. And then we traveled there. We did deep, deep research into the cuisine. I tapped up all my friends and through them, you know, got some amazing contacts. And so the restaurant was born a few months later. How clear was your vision for Hoppers in the very beginning? Did you know exactly what the restaurant should look like, what the service should be like and what should be on the menu? Far from. So we had a vague idea. We had a 40-seat restaurant in Soho. Um, this is back, remind, remember, this is back in 2015. So it was 40-seat, tiny restaurant in Soho. We slowly evolved what we wanted it to be. We had a clear idea that we wanted to be immersive, which all our restaurants are, all three of them, as well as all the JKS restaurants are highly immersive in the sense that they speak the theme and the decor is very important. The design, every touch point is important, the food, the plates and stuff. So we had started thinking about all that. Uh, the menu is something that we had the core of, but then we traveled to Sri Lanka just before 
the opening as well and we got a lot of inspiration and changed a lot of things. Remember, we were as South Indian as Sri Lankan, so we took a lot of tips from our chefs, very, very skilled and experienced people. And so slowly it evolved. But the hardest thing really for us was the front of house service side. Now, again, as someone who, you know, came in from the outside world, initially I thought, hang on, restaurants are all about creating a fun menu, about mm-hmm. creating food and, you know, a few dishes. Today, when I look back, I think that's actually the easiest bit. You know, when you've do, done restaurants enough, especially in today's day and age, a menu is very easy to create, but it's everything else around it. You know, it's almost like I would say everything around the food is 70% of your experience. Tell me about your approach. What is the hospitality you want to offer? So this is what. So when we opened this place, we had a few things to grapple with. And one of them was we wanted it to be no reservations. Now, one of my core fundamental values at Hoppers, and I still do all my trainings with the team, is we are egalitarian. When I say egalitarian, is we're egalitarian both the front and the back. Means as a guest, you can only spend about 35. Now, maybe with inflation, 40, 45 pounds at the restaurant. You go crazy with drinks, a little more than that. But we're not one of those restaurants where you can buy a 5,000 pound bottle of wine. It just doesn't exist. So everyone should be equal and treated equally. Similarly, even on the, on the team side of things, we take on board people from every background. And I love that. We had actors. We had one of our first servers who called me up from Amsterdam. She's a Sri Lankan girl, British-born Rachel. She called me up from Amsterdam. She said, I've seen this advert and I really want to come and work with you. Can I fly down and interview? I said, the fact that you have asked to fly down and interview as a server, you've got your job. Come whenever you're ready. And till today, people remember her. So for me, that is the ethos of what we do. And we want it to be egalitarian. So we want it to be no reservations, walk-in only. We were slated for that to begin with. We had long queues at the block. Then we used technology to t- do remote queues. We were one of the first restaurants to do that. We also did shared tables, which was a very novel concept. Went, you know, completely changed during COVID. So Soho had to remodel. Now it's coming back and I love that. You know, one of my favorite stories, Marcus, if you indulge me, is back in Soho, in 2016 it was, we had two tables next to each other, very, very close to each other, a few inches apart. You had a couple and you had another couple. They spoke through the meal. At the end, one was a slightly older couple, the other one was younger. Rachel, the same girl, brings the bill to one of them. And the other couple reaches over and takes the bill and pays for that first couple, Mm. the one who was presented the bill. And they said, when we were younger... We'd gone out for a meal and someone footed our bill. And ever since, we wanted to repeat the favor and do the same thing for someone else. The other couple was blown away. These two then stayed on for the next two hours buying each other drinks. And I promise you, you know, even today, they wouldn't have forgotten that experience. Hoppers would would be the restaurant that gave them the experience, even if they don't remember the thing they ate. So for me, that is hospitality. That is creating a surrounding where people really connect. Mm. I am a huge fan of Danny Meyer and it gives me immense pride that he's even written a foreword in my book. But he's one of the world's greatest and definitely America's greatest restaurateurs. He's written a book called Setting the Table, which is, you know, our guide through everything we do. I read it even before as a restaurateur. And hospitality, so he talks about hospitality versus service and it's something we live, eat, breathe at Hoppers across our sites. How has the concept developed? How has your thinking evolved? I think the first big thing was, you know, Hoppers was a Hoppers Soho was a tiny room, 40 seats. We could get actors to work. We could get people from all backgrounds to work. And we loved that. When we tried to replicate that in Marlebone, which is only a mile away on the corner of James and Wigmore Street, we opened a larger, 
about a 90-seater restaurant from 40 seats, almost one and a half times. And when we opened that in 17, our ops manager then was someone who, you know, who had worked in big hotels, worked in big restaurants. He'd been part of our group before. We are best friends today and we are, you know, like two heads of the same body, but we fought like crazy. And he said, Karan, this is not going to work. You cannot get the same team to come and work here. You've got to have slicker service. It's got to be more restaurant style. And I fought my battleground. I said, no, I'm going to stick to Hopper's Soho because this is our ethos. And I was wrong. So Savio was right. We had to get a different team. The, and it's unbelievable how the demographic is so different between Soho, Marlebone and now King's Cross. What about King's Cross? Well, what kind of staff did you have to so, find for King's Cross then? We developed. For me, it's really organically d- developing as a group, which is very exciting. I never had this vision. I have never had this. Uh, I mean, I had a vision, but never imagined that we could be the size we are and come to represent Sri Lanka the way we do. But when we opened King's Cross, it was again very different. Now you've got a younger techie crowd. They work in Google or in media. And these are almost the guys who used to come for a date night in Soho, who are now, who've grown up and come to King's Cross. So it's this running joke I have. It's like, if you want to come with your family, come to Marlebone. You want to work, bring your workmates, come to King's Cross. You want to bring your girlfriend, come to Soho. <laughs> We should talk about your cookbook as well, because it is out now. I know that this was partly your idea to launch, to create a cookbook. Why did you want to do that? I think Hopper's, I can't, it might have been an idea. It might have been a seed karam and I planted, and then different people nurtured it along the way. I can't take credit for Hopper's. This book wouldn't exist if A, my Sri Lankan friends, family, and all the people hadn't been as sort of embracing as loving and as generous as they were in accepting us and be every single member of the team whether they worked a week a year five years with us who worked in and out so I don't take credit for it I've only written this book but the story was seven years in the making and a lot of people it was something that came up during lockdown we had this uh, I kind of wanted to see okay we've done three restaurants we had to close three restaurants now what let's do something a little different we've got this amazing platform we've come to represent Sri Lanka how can I make it, you know, what next? What will challenge me? What will excite me? And plus, we had just had our second son. So I needed any excuse to to stay away from putting him to bed at night. So literally every night I would go up to my study at 10 o'clock and write till about 3 o'clock in the morning for about six months when my wife was struggling putting him to bed when he'd wake up. So that was my excuse and that was the ulterior motive. But in that time, I had some great people work on, come and join the team, worked on this book. Quadrille has been phenomenal. Sarah Lavelle, uh, my editor and the MD of Quadrille. Claire, Luke, who's become such a good friend, the designer. He's just done such a phenomenal job. And the best bit is I could get Ryan, who is a Sri Lankan photographer par excellence, who has been like a little, like a younger brother to me for the last four years. He's shot me on various trips. Quadrille allowed him to come and stay with us. Mm-hmm. So he stayed in my house for three weeks and we ate, slept and, you know, drunk this book. And we shot the studio photography. We went, went around town getting inspiration. Plus he shot everything you've seen in Lanka. So it's been a great team. And obviously so many of the people at Hopper's, uh, Helen, my co-food, you know, she helped me with the recipe testing from Waitrose. We had an amazing team. And, you know, just like it takes a great team to do a restaurant, it took an incredible team to to actually bring this book to to life and 
create the beauty. It's, it's also really clever considering that obviously people who know Hoppers, people who know your restaurants, they're mostly in the UK and this book is going to be internationally worldwide. So it's spreading the message. I think we should talk about the food now as well. If you if you want to mention some of the highlights recipes from this book, what are your favourites? So look, while approaching the book, as you rightly said, for me it was, I want 10% of the readers or people who buy this book to be people who knew hoppers. And obviously, they're going to look for the classics. The bone marrow varoval, the pork curry, the hopper itself, all our chutneys and sambals, everything's in there. And we had to have the classics. But then beyond that, I was like, I want this to be almost like one of our restaurants. And I've always said they're like siblings in a family. They aren't identical clones. I hate the word outlet or chain or branch. So this was almost like a fourth restaurant for me. And in there, what was amazing is we could capture stories and recipes from our times in Sri Lanka. So whether it's a recipe I've eaten in a friend's home that I might never have on the menu here, pineapple curry, or pork and arak curry, or a dessert I've eaten somewhere there, or a drink we've had, like Ryan Chetty, who's the greatest, you know, one of the greatest bartenders in London, very close friend of mine, also Sri Lankan, he's developed for us. So it just gave us this opportunity and really... This book has come to be almost a representation of our journey as people who started with this obsession to bring Sri Lankan food here, learned so much along the way, met these amazing friends and experiences, and we've tried to encapsulate all that in the book. So it's like a scrapbook or an ode to Sri Lanka. So imagine you go on holiday every year and you collect little bits and friends and things. I've tried to stick that into the book. Well, now that people discover this book also outside of, of Britain and they are in the know of your restaurants over here in, in the UK, do you want to tell me what you have in the pipeline for the future? Do you have plans for new restaurants? Do you want to go international? What's happening next? I would love to. We will definitely be doing more restaurants because I think there's an appetite there for Sri Lankan food. But what I've sort of, there's been a lot of introspection through COVID, which all of us had, but also in this process of rediscovering and going over our journey while writing this book. You know, you look at that first page, it's a fold out of our entire journey from 2015 to 22 of all the things we've done. And it gave me goosebumps seeing what we've done. But then I kind of asked myself, what is my why and what is the core of what we're doing? What is it that excites us? And oddly enough, the answer wasn't just feeding people or just bringing smiles on people's faces when they came into a restaurant but suddenly I think what really wakes me up in the morning and a lot of my core team in the morning is we've come to represent a country which many of us weren't born in I'm Indian I grew up in Mumbai and I've got this amazing responsibility and this platform where I've got Sri Lankans coming in and saying we're so proud of what you've done I know there's a voice we have so for me I wanted to do something more than that the book was one we wanted to do you know I did a burger with Shake Shack recently which was amazing there were posters all over New York last week with our burger and the biggest thing is this charity we founded during this economic crisis that Sri Lanka is just going through called Feeding the Future now by the end of this year we would have raised a hundred thousand pounds which is a sizable amount especially in given the exchange rate and we've managed to feed 360 three families in at six schools including their teachers we give them a sack of rations which lasts them about a month it's fully nutritionally made so we have a nutritionist who gives us the contents we work with one of the largest suppliers there there's literally not even one penny spent in logistics because i've tied up with a big company there and we're working as part of their outreach program and we've worked with this large supplier it's almost like the tesco of of Sri Lanka, who then does all the logistics of actually sending it to these areas. 
for me, growing that next year to multiples of 100,000 pounds, getting into more schools, doing midday meals and teaching children about, um, about nutrition, making sure they have a meal so they come to school. You know, there's this amazing stat that the guys who we're working with have given us that at those six schools, they measured the attendance of children at the six schools versus the others. And the school, the children have been attending, there's almost 99% attendance at our six schools versus somewhere in the 70s at the others. The kids have also gained weight. They weigh these kids to see the difference. Mm -hmm. And I'd love that to go across. So for me, it's become more of how do we do more from this platform? How do we represent Sri Lanka across the globe with this book, with other stuff? And yes, there will be restaurants. Karen Gokani there. He is the co-founder of Hoppers and the author of Hoppers, the cookbook. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Lillian Fawcett. A California winemaker has bought one of France's most celebrated vineyards and promised to improve its wine, angering locals. Gaylon Lawrence Jr. is reported to have paid between 300 and 400 million euros for a majority share of Chateau Lascombe in Bordeaux, a move the French newspaper La Figaro described as a thunderclap. Lawrence told Bloomberg that Lascombe hasn't made great wine consistently in recent years, despite it being highly regarded in the region. Operators for Hong Kong's famous jumbo floating restaurant are facing a 4.8 million Hong Kong dollar or 602,000 euro lawsuit. The company behind the tourist attraction, which closed in May, allegedly reneged on an agreement to sell part of the boat for just four Hong Kong dollars or 50 euro cents. Kingfield Shipyard Limited accused the restaurant's operators of failing to deliver four vessels as agreed earlier this year. A Scottish brewery has been accused of hypocrisy over its ad campaign for the 2022 Qatar World Cup. First Russia, then Qatar, can't wait for North Korea, is one of the slogans on new billboards for Brewdog, a reference to corruption and human rights abuses associated with this year's tournament. It has since been revealed that Brewdog signed a deal with a Qatari state company to supply beer for the World Cup. In a statement, the beer makers called on critics to focus on companies like Adidas, Kia and Visa, who are official sponsors. And a Netherlands restaurant has been named the world's best vegan restaurant at this year's Gastronomic Forum in Barcelona. Two Michelin star Die Neue Winkel in the eastern town of Nijmegen was recognised by a panel of experts for its innovative and well-balanced dishes. The restaurant is now fully booked until February 2023. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Lillian. You are with The Menu. Up next, we are off to Portugal to visit one of the country's leading gatherings of wine producers at Essencia do Vinho in Lisbon. The event in the Portuguese capital has gradually grown thanks to the efforts of its organiser, the country's leading wine publication, Revista do Vinhos. Monocle's Ivan Cavallo reports. Portugal's wine industry is enjoying a renaissance. Consumption is up as the nation's drinkers now in bib more red, white, and bubbly than any other country. It is home also to an incredible collection of indigenous grapes, over 250 at last count. At Asensio do Vinho, 
this wealth of native grapes was on display. My first stop is the stand of Quinta de Santiago, located in the Monsoon subregion, where the white Alvarino grape is queen. Winemaker Joana Santiago is now experimenting with the Loreto variety. So this is Cisma. Cisma in Portugal means obstinated. Well, in in Quinta de Santiago, we are focused in the production of Alvarino, but we have this obstination for Loreto, and that's why we did this wine with a joint venture with a producer from Douro. So this is a beautiful Loreto from uh, Monsão, from alluvial terraces, with a lot of clay in the soils that gives a richness in the mouth that is very beautiful on this wine. This is a natural wine, a wine that we don't use so far to have all the richness and all the protection that uh, the grape variety Loreiro has with uh, his tense and crispy acidity. It's very mineral and very citric. It means, uh, when I say citric, I, I say that uh, you may remember when you taste this wine that uh, you are drinking some lemon juice and it's very crispy, fresh, and it has a beautiful body and a lot of complexity for a wine that just has 11.5 alcohol. Next, I journey to the Douro, courtesy of the Quinta de Costa du Pignon winery. Known for generations as a port wine producer, in 2014, it started making still wines. Quinta de Costa du Pignon owner, Miguel Moraes. Trying to express the terroir of Douro Valley, in particular the Pignon River Valley, in a fresher, more elegant way. Now, Miguel, I have this wonderful red wine that you've poured for me. What is this wonderful drink I'm having? Well, this is Gradual. It's a 2019 red wine done with traditional varietals in Douro, Toriga Nacional, Toriga Franca, and Tintagorish. It's done in Lagar, traditional food thread, and it ages for one year in barrel. The objective is to do something which is pleasure, just gives you enjoyment, easy drinking, but with some flavor, some structure, some texture. Gastronomic wine, wine to go with food, wine to enjoy with friends. So basically it's something which is complex, but simple at the same time, enjoyment and purity. Now I'm curious, do you like sort of a, a lighter style because some of the Doro Reds can be, the traditional ones can be a bit more heavy. What is your, what is your view? Well, for us, Doro wine, in a way, it's a region which is still discovering itself. It's basically a port wine region. And I'm not sure if my grandfather would agree of me doing still wines in Doro, because for him it was a port wine place. So Doro wines started growing in the 80s and 90s. And I think at that time, people wanted big wines. Nowadays, I think people want something else. And Doro is a region which is still discovering itself. Then it was the turn of Remilo wines producer close to the sea, near Lisbon, in the Colares Appalachian, known for sandy soils. Owner, Nunu Romilo. So now I'm pouring our Malvasia from Colares. These vineyards are grown nearby the ocean, one kilometer from the ocean, in the Lisbon region. So it's a special place because uh, the vineyards are uh, ungrafted and the wines are um, very salty, very mineral. Uh, very different from the usual white wines we can find all over the world. And Nuno, the interesting factor here is is the sand. 
Yes, the sand is a key factor because it allows us to make, to plant our vineyards ungrafted. So it's a unique viticulture. It's not made uh, in a lot of places in the world. And also as it's a cold place, the sand reflects the radiation and makes our grapes ripen than they would be if the sand, would, the soil would not be sandy. Moving farther south, I visit the booth of Quartz de Sima, a producer from the Vidigera subregion in Alentejo. There I met winemaker Anna Jorgensen. So we're based in Vidigera, and the interesting thing here is that there's two places in the world that has had an uninterrupted history in making wine and amphora, which we call Tallas, which is Vidigera and Georgia. So we've started bringing back this tradition, and we've made our the key white, which is following the traditional winemaking technique of vinifying that we've been doing for the last 2,000 years since the Romans, which is a two-month skin contact white, 30% whole bunch, foot trodden, and it just, um, it's a very traditional technique, very little interference, and the wine is finally filtered naturally through the mother, which is the stems and the skins and the leaves in the bottom, and it's a beautiful way of making wine, which we're learning so much from. We also have another wine, which is our Pallietz from 21, collaboration with Daniel Kalina Niport, which is also made in Italia, um, but it's in a more, not in the traditional way. So here we have the whole bunches of, of red grapes and we fill with fermenting white juice in the Italia. And it just essentially just infuses in there for about a week and then we press. So we've got a more traditional wine and a more innovative wine. Collaborations weren't limited between Portuguese wineries. Distributor Vineron from Porto brought a Galician Portuguese white for curious drinkers. Nunubico of Vineron. So here's one of the very various things we have here on tasting today. This is a selection of small producers looking for balance of an, a nice expression of the sense of each place. Uh, we're having here a mix. It's a new Galician project from Guti. He used to be leading winemaker from the major brand Dominio Dobibe and moved on to have a harvest experience in Portugal, in the Douro with Luis Siabra. I ended up creating his project, which uh, it's very curiously, it blends grapes or vinifies grapes from both countries. So we have uh, Portuguese Alvarinho, as tasted in wine, more fat, rounder, aromatic, blended with Galician Alvarinho, much more sharp, acid, in the end, the proportion is quite nice. The record crowds at the Essencia Fair were further proof that the appetite for Portuguese wine won't be going away anytime soon. From Monocle in Lisbon, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan for that report. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 20.00 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Los Angeles. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineers were Stephanie Chungu and Callum McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here are the Marias with All I Really Want Is You. Thanks for listening. All I really want is you.